Our passage today is one of the most famous passages in Philippians. It's kind of a, a major departure from where we were last week in the travelogue that nobody really reads or knows of. We know it's important. This week, we're in a, a chapter that's celebrated, a set of verses that's celebrated often for the, the challenge that they provide to the church. And you know, I'm always nervous when I preach a familiar text. I'm nervous that I won't find something new enough or exciting enough to keep your attention, that as we start diving in and you hear the familiar refrain or the verses that you'll just check out because, you know, you think you have already grasped the main message of this text. But this week I had to be reminded that, that those thoughts, that nervousness and, or that, that normal reaction of human nature needs to be rejected out of hand. Because, you know, sometimes it's good to hear things again. Sometimes it's, it's good to hear familiar things over and over again because the message is significant. Either because of what it's warning us against, maybe a danger that's warning us against, or a hope that it exposes over and over again that we need to be reminded of. Our daughter, Julia, is one year old. She uh, is beautiful. She has the best smile in the whole world. If you see it, you'll know what I'm talking about. It just warms a room. Uh, but she is suddenly weirdly obsessed with our fireplace. Anybody have kids that it's just the oddest thing? Like we'll just be playing in the living room, just having a good time. And all of a sudden she'll just turn her head, set her eyes in that fireplace and just start making her way toward it. And when we call her name, What's interesting is that she goes faster. <laughs> and so we'll try to get her attention, you know, like we'll say, Julia, Grace, Julia, look at me. We'll try to start playing with toys to, to turn her head around so that we can remind her of the important message that fireplaces are not things to play with. That there's danger in the fireplace. If you touch it, you could burn yourself. And we've told her this message over and over, and over, and over, and over again. We'll probably have the conversation with her today. Why? Because for some little reason, her beautiful little head has not wrapped itself around the idea that fireplaces are not exciting and attractive, but they're dangerous. And until she gets it, Jordan and I are going to be telling her about that danger over and over again. It's good for her to hear the same message over and over again because we're warning her about a danger. And the same thing can be true of us. Think about the New Testament. So many times in the New Testament, the message leads us back to the same place, the same dangers, the same hopes to focus on. And, and I guess we should take the New, New Testament's lead there, that there are some things that are important enough, serious enough to hear more than once. And Paul certainly echoes this in today's, today's passage, Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. He says to the, the Philippians, it's no trouble to write the same things to you. It's, it's an it's a issue of safety for you. It's your good that I write these things over and over again to you because sometimes like Julia, we don't get the full weight of a truth the first time we hear it. Or sometimes we forget a truth that has been situated into our hearts. And the Lord's been so good to us through his word to remind us of these things. And today we have such a reminder, a familiar reminder. I don't want you to 
to just dismiss it. I want us to wrestle with it today. It's a reminder about where our eternal confidence should lie. Where our spiritual confidence should lie on the day when we stand before the Lord. Will we rely on our own works? Or will we rely rely upon a greater, a better work? Let me ask the question this way. You can imagine that Paul is asking this question and then answers it in our passage today. When we stand before a holy and righteous God at the end of human history to be judged, what will we present before him to receive our eternal reward rather than an eternal punishment? Where will we place our confidence on that day to say to God, I should be able to stand before you? Apparently in the Philippian church, there were some who were getting that answer wrong. And Paul says, the answer to this question is a gospel issue. It is central to the Christian faith, how you answer this question. And it's one that we as human beings must constantly battle because our human nature is to answer it wrongly. We want to think in our heart of hearts that somehow we add value to the work of Christ. We we want to believe that we should have a say in our eternal destiny, that we should have a say in our salvation. But this is not true. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can offer God that would be able or enable you to stand before him a holy and righteous judge. You should never place your confidence in your own work for your salvation. There's only one place that our confidence should be placed, and it is the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let's see how Paul challenges us in this, in our passage, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Finally, my brothers, sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. It's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as as rubbish, trash, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul here is 
is warning the Philippian church about some false teachers, false teachers who are known as Judaizers. That may be a familiar term to you. They're, they're dealt with throughout the New Testament. But these Judaizers kind of taught a, a Jesus plus gospel. That the work of Christ was not alone enough for salvation. That if you were a Gentile and you came to faith in Christ, not only did you have to place your faith in Christ, you also had to begin adopting the full Jewish faith, all the Jewish practices. So it was Christ's work plus your obedience to the law that made you righteous before a holy and righteous God. And they specifically advocated for circumcision. And so let's take a look at a video about what they were going to have to do to be Christians. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Wouldn't that be awkward? No. It's awkward enough about talking about it, right? (laughs) Nobody wants to see it. But they were saying that, (laughs) I'm not going to get you back. No, let's come back. (laughs) They were saying that you had to be circumcised. Like you had to have a physical expression of obedience, a physical act of obedience to shore up your righteousness, to shore up your standing before a holy and righteous God. And Paul says it's dangerous to say things like this. It's dangerous. In fact, he says it's, it's evil because of how it diminishes the work of Christ. He goes so far to say in the book of Galatians that the gospel that the Judaizers are teaching is a completely different gospel. That's not at all what Christ was saying. See, one of the, the key New Testament truths that we're brought to time and time again is the fact that Jesus plus anything is not the gospel. The work of Christ plus any other work is not the gospel. These men, these Judaizers, they want you to put confidence in your own works because they don't think the work of Christ is enough. You gotta have some say in the game. You need to hedge your bets to make sure that when you stand before the Lord and you're desiring to partake in the resurrection of the dead into heaven for all of eternity, you need to make sure that you have more to offer than just the work of Jesus. And Paul says that's baloney. Your work was never good enough. It was never, just go look at the Old Testament. No matter how good the people of God were, they were never good enough. So what makes you think that now, on this side of Jesus, that your work would offer any value to your salvation? No, it is solely the work of Christ. And Paul says, look at my example, if you need any proof of it. If you want to, If you want to see that your works do not produce godliness, not truly, don't produce righteousness that would allow you to stand before our God one day on the day of judgment, just look to my own example, look to my life. And he kind of gives us a biography. Paul says, I put confidence in the flesh and I had a whole lot of confidence in my flesh. I thought I could please God and earn my salvation and look at all that I did to try to earn the salvation. Listen to his record. He was circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. From an early age, his parents were, were pushing him into obedience to the law. And as the law, as the law demanded ritual purity, Paul obliged. He was of God's chosen people of all the tribes of the earth, of all the people of the earth. He was born 
into the people of God, the people that God called out from among all the other nations. He was an Israelite. He could trace his heritage. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a celebrated tribe, a tribe that, that when the land was divided among the 12 tribes, this tribe's land had Jerusalem in it. And from this tribe came King Saul, the first king of Israel. It's possible that Saul was even named after King Saul. He was a Jewish man and a celebrated tribe who knew his lineage and he did not forget his language. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He, even though he wasn't living in Jerusalem, even though he was part of the diaspora, he did not forget his heritage. He remembered his language and the language that God gave the Old Testament in. He was zealous for the law, passionate about the law, as passionate as you can get a Pharisee devoted to, to being obedient to the law and persecuting anybody who would threaten the sufficiency of the law. He walked blamelessly in his own mind according to the law, and in the eyes of man, he was declared righteous, worthy of following. Every, outwardly, he did everything that you were expected to do. And Paul says, but all of it was trash. All of it was, was worthy of being flushed down the toilet. That's what that word rubbish means there. Because it didn't add anything of value to my life. It didn't give me any righteousness. In fact, it produced quite the opposite. Look at what my self-sufficiency produced in me. It didn't change my heart. Outwardly, I... I may have won the favor of man, but I did not win the favor of God. I was mean. I was hateful. I was filled with pride. Instead of giving life, I murdered people. I, I gloried in the murder of people who were faithfully following after the Son of the living God. Paul says, this work in my own strength brought about in me everything that God hates. My self-righteousness did not produce godliness. It revealed my lack of godliness over and over and over again. I needed something different to be able to allow me to stand on the day of judgment, to, to partake in the resurrection of the dead. And he said, I only realized it because of the grace of God. One day on a road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, something Incredible happened. I was blinded, but Jesus opened my eyes to see my need, to see the emptiness of my works and to look to another place to, to achieve the righteousness that I needed to stand before God. I began to, to not glory in my own work, but glory in the work of Christ. And here's why. Jesus did perfectly and with the perfect heart what I could not do. He met God's perfect standard perfectly. And not only did he display righteousness, he has now provided a way for all of us who turn to him for salvation to be declared righteous in his righteousness. And it's through Jesus, his perfect sinless life, that I now can stand or I will be able to stand before a holy and righteous God one day. Through him, I have favor. Through him, I have a righteousness. My faith cannot be in my work. My faith can only be in the finished work of Christ. And so Paul says, 
Learn from my example. Don't listen to these dogs. These dogs stirring up trouble where they don't belong. That's what dogs do sometimes, right? They, they enter into places they don't belong and they start tearing up stuff that they have no business tearing up. And it's kind of a, a backhand statement against these Judaizers because you know what they used to call Gentiles? Dogs. All these dogs, they don't belong here. And Paul says, you know who actually doesn't belong here? You. Because you're preaching a false gospel. So look out for these dogs, these evildoers. Don't, don't listen to them. Don't put your confidence in the flesh. Actually, you need to recognize that Christianity will cost you your flesh. You, you can't have confidence in something that you have to reject and lose to be able to actually follow Christ the way that he has asked you to follow him because you're going to suffer. You're going to become like him in his death. And it is through that that you can know him. It is through that that you can know the power of his resurrection. It is through that that one day you will be raised from the dead to stand before a holy and righteous God for all of eternity. So he says, do not rejoice in your work. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Not in yourself and the Lord. I'm going to write it to you over and over and over again until you get it. And aren't you glad we finally got it, that we don't struggle with this anymore? No, that's not true. And you know it. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're on the struggle bus. And you're on the struggle bus, just like the Philippian church. All right. So let's get practical though, okay? Let's, let's think through, how is it that today we still show confidence in the flesh? And listen, this is not just for unbelievers. It's certainly for unbelievers. It's also true for Christians because even though, as I've said earlier today, we would say that we believe that it's only through faith in Christ, grace by faith that we have been saved, that sometimes we begin to revert back to old habits. And it's important for us to recognize that that maybe subconsciously and directly at times we place a lot or too much confidence in our flesh. And that we think when we stand before the Lord that we're going to have to add something to the work of Christ. And so I want to challenge us in that this morning to make sure that we're only rejoicing in the Lord, not rejoicing in ourselves. So let's get specific. How do we begin thinking about the way that we put confidence in the flesh today? I'm going to, I'm going to appeal to something Tony Marita wrote and his commentary on this passage to help us get practical about how we put confidence in the flesh today. So let's look at Philippians 3, 5, and 6 again. Let's walk through the places that Paul put confidence and then see how we do that today. So firstly, Paul says he was circumcised on the eighth Day. What is it Paul is putting confidence in there? Well, he's putting confidence in ritual. He's, he's putting confidence in ordained behavior from God to be able to stand before a holy and righteous God. Paul was an eighth dayer. And anybody who was converted to Judaism or Christianity but wasn't born into a Jewish, a, a Orthodox practicing family couldn't claim this, that they were an eighth dayer. They got circumcised later. But he was early on, committed to the ritual practice of the Jewish faith, that this, this behavior. And Paul says, you can't have confidence in that kind of ritual. 
Let me ask you this question. Have you ever heard somebody, when you're asking them about their faith, say something like this? Well, uh, you say, tell me about your, your experience with Jesus. When did you become a Christian? And they say, well, you know, I was baptized at six. I was baptized at seven. Or they, they refer to their baptism as a declaration of their salvation. And there could be a, a way in which that is right. But there's also a way in which that's wrong. Because there's nothing about your, sal- your, your baptism that guarantees your salvation. There's no action that you can take that guarantees your salvation. It may be evidence of a saving work of God in your body. It may, it may be an outward expression of what God has already done inwardly, but it in no way adds to the finished work of Christ. Let me just tell you, I've been in that water. I've been covered in it. I've looked at it. And there's nothing special about that water. Nothing. There's nothing special about you going down and coming back out of it that would clean you any more than you have already been cleaned by the blood of Jesus Christ. So I want to challenge you. If you think that being baptized, walking down an aisle, even reciting some words that someone told you to say is an evidence of your salvation, you could be deceived. Those things are good if they are a response to a work that God has already begun in you by the power of the Holy Spirit, if they are an evidence of faith that God has already birthed within you, then praise the Lord that we have those expressions as markers for us to stand on with confidence of what God has done within us. But if you think those things in and of themselves are enough, you're wrong. And Paul says as much. Circumcised on the eighth day, he was of Israel. The set-apart people of God. He put confidence in his ethnicity. He put confidence in where he was from. Now, I struggle with how to help us wrap our minds around this since we don't live in Nazi Germany today. How is it that we could have confidence in our, or an overconfidence in our ethnicity, an overconfidence in where we are from? And I begin to think about our families. And the same question, hey, tell me about your conversion experience. Have you ever heard someone say this? Well, you know, I grew up in a Christian home and I've always been Christian. Well, no, you haven't. You've always been a sinner, but you haven't always been a Christian. Unless there's a moment where you as an individual had a life-changing encounter with Christ, where you recognized your sinfulness, where you recognized your need for a savior, that you could not stand before a holy and righteous God without the work of Christ and you repented of your sins and believed in him alone for salvation, you are not a Christian. I don't care what your parents believed. I don't care how many times they took you to church. I don't care how many preachers are in your family, how many Sunday school teachers are in your family. If you have not had that moment of revelation, responding in repentance and belief, you are not a follower of Christ. And Paul says, look at my example. I'm from this people, but I wasn't saved. He was in the tribe of Benjamin, not only of this people, he was set apart from within the people. So, He had confidence in his rank, where he ranked among the people of God. Do you know this? 
There are deacons in churches who do not know Jesus. There are pastors who are standing in pulpits today, preaching the word of God, saying the things of God, but do not know Jesus. There are ABF teachers, Sunday school teachers around the world today who have stood before the people of God and proclaimed the things of God and yet do not know Jesus. Let me just tell you this, guys. It didn't matter what man says about you. It didn't matter what platform man places you on, not even the people of God. What man says about you is not more important than what God has said about you. And the only way you'll have right standing before him is if he says you are covered by the sun. Sometimes the people of God get it wrong. Hopefully we don't often. Hopefully we're, we're pretty good. And we've, we've been raised a game here about testing the people who are placed in these kind of positions, but it doesn't mean we always get it right. Just because you have a position, a rank, doesn't mean you are a follower of Christ. You need genuine faith. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I speak the language. I didn't forget the language. I didn't forget where I came from. He's putting confidence in his tradition. How long have you been following Christ? Well, I've been a Baptist my whole life. Not what I asked. <laughs> Praise the Lord if you're a Baptist. Praise the Lord if you're convictionally aligned with us. Listen, it would be great if you were baptized in First Baptist Church of Dallas under W.A. Criswell. You attended every single convention the, whole, the Southern Baptist Convention ever put on. You still read from the King James Version and have the new King James Version to help you make sense of the King James Version in your quiet time. You still sing out of the Baptist hymnal that was printed in the 50s. You give your tithe through the certified Lifeway envelopes that have been printed for years and years and years. And all those things can be true and you could not be a follower of Christ. Tradition doesn't save you, friends. No matter how many things you hold to, how many practices of your people you hold to, that is not what gives you confidence to stand before a holy and righteous God. He was a Pharisee. He was committed to rule keeping. And the Pharisees were so committed to rule keeping, they didn't think the rules God gave them were enough. You know anybody like that? Talk about type, type A personalities. We need more rules just to be sure that all the rules we've been given by God are followed. And then, you know, additionally to that, we can say not only, God, did we do all of these rules, Look at all of these extra rules that we, look how, look how little I walked on the Sabbath. Aren't you so proud of me? And God's going to be like, I don't really care about that. Everything I gave you, I cared about. The extra stuff, it didn't, it didn't help you. You weren't good enough with this. No matter what else you add to it, it's not enough. Some of you in here are like, Jared, I, I'm committed to driving 30 miles an hour on Irving Boulevard even though it's the most ridiculous speed limit in the history of speed limits, I'm going to be 30 miles an hour on Irving Boulevard. And every time I pass that cop hiding by that apostolic church, you know what I'm talking about? I say in my heart, I am in right standing before this cop and I'm in right standing before God. And I'm going to say, God, here I am before you. And I drove the speed limit and he's going to say, good for you, but that didn't get you into heaven. It's good to obey the laws of the land. But you're never perfectly obedient. And even if you ever transgress the law once, 
you're not obedient enough. No matter how many extra rules you add to your life to try to keep up or to add, to, to count for the way you've messed up in the past, it will, not, it will only add anxiety and stress to your life. It will not allow you to rest before the Lord. He was a Pharisee. He was zealous. He was passionate about the law. He, would, he wasn't just passionate about himself keeping these laws. He was passionate about other people keeping the law so much that he persecuted them. Let me just tell you guys, just because you have passion about something does not mean it's true. Have you heard people say things like, you can believe whatever you want to believe as long as you're sincerely believing it. Listen, a lot of the people sincerely believed the earth was flat for a long time and they murdered people who said it was round. How dumb-dumb do those people look today? They were passionate about it and they were wrong. You can be passionate about something and dead wrong about it. Your passion, your, your zealousness in your belief does not make it right. It may just reveal how deceived you are. And finally, he put confidence in his obedience to the law. He was blameless according to the law in the eyes of people. He was self-righteous. And there's no more dangerous place to be because yourself will never be righteous enough. Now notice, we're not saying that all these things are bad. Some of those things are good. The question is not whether or not they're right or wrong. The question is, do you have, where do you place your confidence? The question is, do these things in and of themselves make you able to stand before a holy and righteous God on the day of judgment when you're striving to partake in the resurrection of the dead to heaven? Those things won't give you confidence on that day. The only thing that would give you confidence today is the work of Christ. Friends, we are the people who worship by the Spirit of God, verse 3. We are the people who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We are the people who place our faith in Christ and we long for the righteousness from God that depends on this faith, not on our works, but our faith in the finished work of Christ. We need a different righteousness. I hope you're obedient. I hope you're baptized, but you don't need the righteousness that comes from that. You need a different righteousness that comes only from Jesus. A faith supernaturally given by the Father in the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. A transformed heart. And if you place your faith, hear me, this is good news. Now, there's not good news, it's bad news. But if you place your faith in the finished work of Christ and the future work of Christ on that day of judgment, you will be able to stand before him because you can stand in Christ. So where are you today? What's your confidence in? If somebody were to ask you the questions I've been asking you, how would you answer them? Tell me about the moment you met Jesus. Well, I've known him my whole life. No. Well, I was baptized. No. I've done a lot of really good things. I think he's going he's gonna to like me. Well, no. Those are not the right answers. They may be evidences of the right answer, but they're not the right answer. The only the only answer, the only good answer to that question 
of how will you know where you will stand on the day of God's judgment is, I was wrecked by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I realized that my work would never be enough. And so I placed my faith entirely in the work of Jesus. That's the only answer. I've been teaching on the book of Revelation. Any of my Revelation peeps in here? It's been a great study, right? And um, I was reminded as I was preparing for this week of Revelation 6 and Revelation 7. And in Revelation 6, we see the, the seals kind of opened. And uh, in verse 12, we see the, the sixth seal, which is the, the judgment of God being poured out upon the earth. It's, it's the day of the Lord. It's been talked about throughout the, the scripture. And listen to what happens to those who are unrighteous, who are maybe self-righteous, as thought of themselves as powerful or okay to stand before a holy and righteous God. This is the beginning in verse 12. Then he opened the sixth seal. Jesus opened the seal. I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. So notice how creation is buckling under the wrath of God. Nothing can stand in the presence of the wrath of God. Then the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone who has had favor among man, but not favor among God. Everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And listen, who can stand? That's the question of all eternity, friends. Who can stand? Kings, powerful the people who have found favor in the eyes of man will not stand. Even those who have found favor in their own eyes will not stand. Who will stand? Paul answers a question in chapter 7. He sees another angel. Some of them are holding back the four winds. Another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice, this is verse two, the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea saying, do not harm the earth or the seas or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. There's a seal over them, a protection over them. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel, just representing all the people who are saved by Christ. After this, I looked and behold, verse nine, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all tongues, standing. What are they doing? Who can stand? These people standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And here's what they're crying with a loud voice, verse 10, salvation belongs to our good works and all the good things, all the traditions that we did. Look how we're standing before God because of all of our good stuff. Is that what they say? No. How are they able to stand? Salvation belongs to our God who sits onto the throne and to the lamb. You know how you're going to be able to stand on the day of judgment? You know how you're going to be able to be protected from the day of judgment? It's the work of Christ. Friends, are you protected? On that day of judgment, what will you present before God to say, 
I should be able to stand. Your works are the work of Christ. Wherever you are, you bow your head. Spend some time asking the Lord how to respond. Where's your confidence today? In the faith of your parents? The tradition of your church? Your obedience to a law or the law? Or is it in Christ? The only place it should be is in Jesus. Your work will not save you. The work of Christ will If you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never seen him for all that he is and repented and believed in him for salvation, confessing with your mouth that he is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, in just a minute, we're going to have some pastors and ministers here in the front and we would love to speak with you. But first, we're going to respond by taking the Lord's Supper. We're going to have a moment to to remember the broken body of Jesus, the poured out blood of Jesus that allows us to rest that gives us the confidence to stand before a holy and righteous God. If you're not a follower of Christ, I would pray that you would see the collective testimony of the people in this room who are saying, we can only stand because of Jesus. And we are worshiping him today because of what he has done for us. His work, not our work. Let that testimony be a moment of conviction for you. For the rest of us, though, who are already in Christ, have we began to slip back into this Jesus plus stuff? If that's true in your life, would you repent of that? And would you allow this to be a moment where you celebrate the sufficiency, the completeness of the work of Christ? That his work is enough. Our work simply evidences the work that he has already done in us. We don't place confidence in that. Our confidence is in Jesus. If there's anything in your life that would inhibit that testimony, would you repent of it right now? I'll give you a moment of prayer as our deacons come forward. And Father, we ask you to help us in this moment to rejoice in the Lord. Not in ourselves, but in you. May this be a reminder of the completeness of your work that will guard us for all eternity from your judgment. May it also be a moment where those who don't know you See your body and blood and step into the covering it provides. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Deacons.